Good morning, SNWT, well, New Orleans News and Views. Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. I'm Naomi Fowler. Coming up later, the story the mainstream media aren't telling you, how governments around the world are undermining our tax collection services. We look at how the building of South Africa's revenue service can bring hope. It was known as the higher purpose. It was certainly one of the reasons why I think the revenue service was able to, over the years, grow and develop and become this world-class institution that it did ultimately become. It was not just a job, it was a heart and mind labour of love. But it's also a cautionary tale that shows how important tax consciousness is and for us to always value and defend the most precious foundation of our nations. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. The coronavirus pandemic has shown us more than ever how important tax justice is for decent public services, caring for people when they need it. But for a long time our tax collectors have been under attack by governments. We're having a little protest here today to say, keep Ealing Tax Office open. We're very experienced people across the country and our jobs are valuable. We're the best bargain you'll ever get. The money that we cost compared to the money that we raise for hospitals, for schools, for the infrastructure, for the roads, the police, we're a great bargain. Two years now nearly trying to save our office. We really, really need it more than ever now, especially in the light of coronavirus. We need all the taxes we can get to pay for the extra care that people will need. This is purely a cost-cutting measure. 500 offices being closed, 50,000 staff being lost, and yet you want the biggest budget to spend the most money. Nobody's going to be around to collect it. Stop this program now. Support your tax staff. Make sure we're still here to do the job you want us to do. These are tax office workers protesting outside the British Parliament just before the lockdown. Their resources were virtually halved in a decade and they're still dropping. They can bring in up to 30 times their salary in terms of tax revenue. And yet no other tax authority in Europe has cut its staffing more than the UK has, except for Greece. Yet the tax gap in the UK is high. Avoided, evaded and uncollected tax is estimated to be at about £119 billion a year. And unfortunately, these cuts to British tax office workers is common across the world. And tax takes everywhere are falling. Successive administrations in the United States have been cutting back on their tax authority, the IRS, for years too. This has resulted in billions in lost revenue each year in the States, with more than a third less auditors to do the job than in 2010. It's all benefiting the wealthy and big companies the most. And all the evidence shows they're the biggest and most persistent offenders. The outgoing commissioner of the IRS warned about cuts to tax collection back in 2016, here, speaking to PBS. Well, my uh, farewell tour of the Hill over the last four to six weeks has been to advise them or warn them that I am deeply concerned that we have cut the agency far more than it can and should be cut if it's going to continue to function effectively. It's either its IT system is going to fail, it's running an antiquated system out of date in many ways, uh, and we won't be able to do the processing of filing season, or as we continue to do fewer audits, Uh, the compliance system will erode and that will cost the government billions of dollars. 
That was John Koskinen, former IRS commissioner in the States. And a few years before that, he was already sounding the alarm. My view is simple. I believe that the underfunding of the agency is the most critical challenge facing the IRS today. And the serious ramifications of five years of budget cuts are becoming increasingly visible and will worsen if action isn't taken soon. The IRS is now at its lowest level of funding since 2008. If you adjust for inflation, our budget is now comparable to where we were in 1998. While our budget has been shrinking, however, the taxpayer base has grown by millions. Since 75% of the IRS budget, more or less, is personnel, the agency has been absorbing the budget reductions mainly by shrinking our workforce. As a result, we ended fiscal 2014 with more than 13,000 fewer permanent full-time employees compared with 2010. We expect to lose another 3,000, more or less, by the end of this year. It means that both enforcement and taxpayer service will suffer. As you can imagine, his public criticism of the cuts to the IRS didn't go down well with all sorts of politicians. Here's Kevin Brady, Republican representative on Fox News. Uh, it is time for John, long past time for John Koskinen to go. We need a fresh start at that agency to do what we want to do, um, which is we want to bust up the IRS as it is today and redesign it. We think you can do much better in that agency, and I think it's critical. Hmm. And let's look at what it actually means when qualified staff lose their jobs. Where do they and all their experience go? I asked two of the tax office staff at the protest outside the UK Parliament trying to save their jobs. How long have you worked for the tax office? Uh, it'll be 21 years this year. That's a lot of training and a lot of experience. Well, it, it is a lot of training, a lot of experience. I've actually worked in um, training other tax inspectors with a, a, a large part of that 21 years. So, yes, it is. Up until recently, I've loved the job that I, I do. I've always justified it because... It pays for hospitals and schools and the whole infrastructure. And for me, it's the sort of bastion of civilised society that people pay into a tax system to support everybody else. I think that those people at the bottom of the rung, and I include myself in that, will always have to pay their taxes. The top of the rungs that we need to police, I just don't know who's going to police those businesses. And it, it terrifies me as in as a member of HMRC and also as a member of the public, a taxpaying member of the public. I've already been approached to come out and work for the opposition, shall we say, as an advocate in tribunal cases. I've never lost a tribunal case. What um, do you mean by the other side? By the other side, as tax advocates for the appellants, I know that I can rip apart... You mean for the big four accountancy firms? Or? Not necessarily accountancy firms, but tax consultants. I deal with evasion cases. My expertise is evasion. I've never lost an evasion case at a tribunal. And as a result, I'm being approached by people that know me and I know who've already left the department to come out and represent their clients, which are generally evaders. Unfortunately, it's not in my... To defend them. To defend them and to contest what is being put forward by us. Doesn't that stand against everything you believe in? It goes absolutely against my psyche. That's not what my vocation is. But I know that there are people doing that. You mean there are people doing that that have, are losing their jobs who have been working for us, for the yeah. people? And know where we fall short. So at the end of the day, we will stand to lose a higher rate of tax uh, tribunals because we won't have the expertise in the staff there to present them. We're not going to win. 
we are not going to win, we are going to lose cases and every case that we lose sets a precedent for a similar case that's in the waiting. Every assessment that's not upheld undermines other assessments that are raised on the same basis. So when you've got a team like mine which deals with projects somewhere in the region of 2,000 cases a year, 2,000 different projects, if we lose one we undermine that project completely and the yield that comes in from that project. So we need the staff to do it. Without the experience, the expertise, the knowledge to present these cases and to challenge these traders who are evading, then we will ne- never get the tax. We will never address the tax gap. The hidden economy items we're never going to find. We're never going to find the off-record employees. We're never going to find the uh, millions that are going around this country untaxed. You can look at this place around Belgravia, especially in the southeast. There's lots of wealth down here. A vast proportion of it is not going taxed. Those tax evasion cases, those tax avoidance cases, they're not going to be addressed. They're not going to be addressed. That money's going to be lost forever. And no matter how much training and how many staff they recruit, it's going to take, to get to my level, 35 years of experience to build up that expertise. And we're not even recruiting, we're not even retaining them for two years. It is crazy. Crazy indeed. And so this loss to us, the public, goes straight to private gain. Journalist Paul Keel of ProRepublica covered the cuts to the IRS extensively. Uh, we haven't got the audit numbers from last year, but it's already apparent that it's the lowest audit rate that I can find in the history, at least recent history of the IRS, um, since they've been keeping the numbers the way they've been keeping them going back uh, at least several decades. And the main reason for that, in addition to you know just sheer lack of staff to do audits, was the uh, shutdown of the government for about a month, uh, January of 2019, which stopped a lot of audits from even occurring. So this year, obviously, things are going to be a lot worse. Who knows uh, how low the audit rate is going to go. But the, the number of those audits have been just completely <laughs> uh, going through the floor in terms of the rate of audits uh, of the largest corporations and uh, the wealthiest taxpayers. And there's no reason to think that's going to stop from happening. You know, the, the budget for enforcement is still very much depressed from what, what it was uh, 10 years ago. So until Congress decides that it wants to audit people at a, at a rate that is more commensurate to what has been the case publicly, um, that's not going to happen. It's going to take quite a, a budget boost for the IRS to begin to recover, and it's going to be a process that is going to take several years as you have to train new staff and get people up to speed. So, you know, I think it's safe to say several years from now is the earliest that we would see a return to audit rates that are sort of normal by uh, historical standards. Yet it could be so different. And it has been. The story of the South Africa Revenue Service provides hope about what can be achieved, but it's also a cautionary tale. This is Johan van Logerenberg, author of Death and Taxes, How the South African Revenue Service Made Hitmen, Drug Dealers and Tax Dodgers Pay Their Dues. I joined the Revenue Service in South Africa in, uh, in 1998. And I left there in 2015. When I joined, I joined at a relatively junior level. And by the time I left the revenue service, I was one of two group executives in the enforcement environment. And I left there in the wake of what was known as state capture, what is known as state capture in South Africa. South Africa has a history. 
And that history is partly informed by colonialism, which was followed by apartheid and the in, a regime that enforced apartheid on the population. And then came 1994, which effectively brought the first legitimate democratically elected government into being in South Africa. South Africa remains a developing state. And by and large, the reasons for this is because of the remnants of those items that I've mentioned to you now that remain very relevant to this day in our society. I think almost from the beginning, when the South African Revenue Service came into being, which was around 1995, so that's the year after uh, democracy by law, it became a unique state organ in the sense that it was seen to be autonomous from government. And a part of that was informed by what I believe to be a deep recognition that the revenue service, particularly when it comes to developing states, enables one to embark on a journey that would ultimately lead to fiscal sovereignty, which is something any developing economy should strive towards. It would also enable government to get rid of the immense debts that it had inherited from the regime before, but it would more importantly be able to enable government to fund the future. And because you had to address the past and you had to do so in a sovereign basis without going around with the begging bowl, the revenue service was seen to be, at least strategically, a pivotal tool within the legitimate government to finance its future plans to uplift society and, and remedy the past. And what was born out of that realization and acknowledgement was what was called, from the early days in the revenue service, the late 90s, and developed over time, it was known as the higher purpose. So it was not just an institution that was there to enforce tax and customs and excise legislation and do what revenue and customs authorities do, but the human beings that sat in that institution could directly link what they did on a daily basis, wherever they were in the institution, to a higher purpose, which was to address the past, make the country more fiscally sovereign and help the government to fund programs and its plans to make a better country for all. And that higher purpose remained within the revenue service, very visible up until around 2014. It was certainly one of the reasons why I think the revenue service was able to, over the years, grow and develop and become this world-class institution that it did ultimately become. It was not just a job, it was a heart and mind uh, labour of love. In South Africa, he says they invested in education on the higher purpose of tax. They set up on-the-ground tax offices to help people and they invested in effective enforcement, top skills. You know, if one looked at the results of the revenue service over those years, Bar for the fiscal year 2008-9, 
the revenue service consistently over-collected on the annual targets of revenue set by government required to fund itself and its programs every single year. And in fact, that curve increased year on year. The exception in 2008, of course, can be attributed to the fiscal meltdown worldwide. I should add, though, that when you do a comparison to other revenue services and the South African Revenue Service for that particular financial year, the drop was not that marked a drop. So it did affect revenue collections, but, but not as much as the norm appears to be worldwide. And then there was also a key drive in bringing in expert skills. So because the revenue service was autonomous, it was capable of going out into the market and recruiting and headhunting experts in their fields. And in that way, the revenue service, for instance, managed to build a large business center. It had a world-class transfer pricing unit. It had top-class lawyers. It had the best forensic investigators and laboratory that money could buy. In fact, some of the people that worked in my division trained the FBI and they trained people in the Australian Revenue Services and people in the Middle East and most African countries. A lot of the systems that we had developed, we had also then provided for free to many of our African brothers and sisters, and they implemented them within their revenue agencies, and we helped them do that. Out of that, for instance, was also born the the African Tax Administration, which South Africa and the Revenue Service funded initially and hosted until it began to operate on its own. It shows what's possible when a kind of tax consciousness is a solidaristic thing, a patriotic thing, based on common purpose. But, very sadly, it didn't last. All of this changed from around the fiscal year 2014-15 onwards. And this is by and large attributable to what's known as state capture. The leadership of the Revenue Service was effectively wiped out within a matter of a month, a few months. There were all sorts of people coming in and going out of the finance ministry hot seat. And um, there were sort of greater issues of corruption going on in the country. Other institutions were also being weakened in the same way. It was done in in an incredibly brutal manner by humiliating people. And effectively, those plans that that brought the revenue service to the level that it was recognized worldwide as a, as a model, they were just discarded almost overnight. The revenue service was deliberately and actively undermined by a combination of people within government, people within our political structures, people who were in dispute with the revenue service, people who saw the revenue service as a threat, and to the extent that the Revenue Service happened to come across some of their dirty schemes. From the fiscal years 2015-16, there was an under-collection of around 11 billion rand, uh, South African rand. The following year, it it more than doubled to over 23 billion rand under-collected. 
the following year it again more than doubled to just over 48 billion rand under collected. So effectively government became poorer and poorer in, in the following years. Around 2017-18 there was significant pushback from society and the media and outsiders and um, civil society bodies and the public that began to somewhat push back against those who were engaged in the capturing of the state and repurposing of the state. And as a consequence to that, the person who was in charge of the revenue service during that horrible period ultimately left, as did his counterparts in in other state institutions that had been equally affected. Of course, the damage has been done. And, you know, it, it takes many years to build something You can break it very quickly with a 10-pound hammer, but to rebuild it will not only require you to almost start from scratch again, but you will also have to deal with the damage of the 10-pound hammer. And I think that's more or less where the revenue service finds itself at the moment. You've lost a lot of institutional memory. You've lost a lot of experience. The the revenue service has shrunk. It lost over 2,000 people during state capture, And those people that left, they were your superstars. It will take a very, very long time to rebuild that institution. It will take us all a very long time to rebuild our tax collection bodies and to awaken a tax consciousness in people, politicians and businesses. Even though the South Africa Revenue Service has been so weakened from its former glory, That labour of love still shows us what can be achieved in the most challenging and traumatic of circumstances. You've been listening to the TaxCast. Stay safe and well. We'll be back with you next month. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, one teacher described it as a gut punch, hearing New York governor and current media crush Andrew Cuomo talk about reimagining education in the wake of the pandemic, without what he called the old model emphasis on teachers and classrooms. Cuomo announced an initiative with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who've been behind decades of education interventions in this country, all of which have failed to deliver on their promises, but have drained funds from public schools and undermined public school teachers. One Gates project that activists fought off was a cloud-based system called In Bloom that collected millions of students' detailed personal information, a massive intrusion Cuomo called necessary. Maybe that could spur some questions, particularly now that Cuomo's added Google head Eric Schmidt to the reimagining team. 
Diane Ravitch is a historian of education at New York University and author of, most recently, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. We'll talk with her about the latest scheme for rich people to decide what's best for schools their children don't attend. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. A cable sent to State Department officials in March was obtained by the Daily Beast. It contained talking points, apparently originating at the National Security Council, for U.S. officials speaking about coronavirus and the White House's response in relation to China. We're being told to try and get this messaging out in any way possible, including press conferences and television appearances, an anonymous official told the Daily Beast. That messaging included not just claiming that the Chinese Communist Party disastrously bungled the country's response because it, quote, cared more about its reputation than its own people's suffering, close quote, but also insisting that, quote, the United States and the American people are demonstrating once again that they are the greatest humanitarians the world has ever known, close quote. Go big or go home, I suppose. Corporate media are playing their own role in laying the groundwork for a new Cold War with China, presenting the nation as a hostile power that needs to be kept in check. As Greg Shupak writes for FAIR.org, the Washington Post ran an article last month by Republican Senator Mitt Romney, the second line of which stated, quote, The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed that, to a great degree, our very health is in Chinese hands. From medicines to masks, we're at Beijing's mercy, close quote. Details like the U.S. having 21 times as many nuclear warheads as China or the fact that it's the U.S. dollar and not the Chinese yuan that underpins the global financial system don't enter into it. China has a, quote, grand strategy for economic, military, and geopolitical domination, close quote. And thus the West must respond with a, quote, unified strategy among free nations to counter China's trade predation and its corruption of our mutual security, close quote. Also, quote, because our military has missions around the world, this means that in the Pacific, where China concentrates its firepower, it will have military superiority, close quote. In other words, China is a danger because it concentrates its firepower in the ocean nearest to it, while the U.S.'s divine right to empire requires that its military saturate the globe, including a massive presence in the Asia-Pacific region. The U.S. and China have the world's largest bilateral trade relationship right now, but for Romney, particularly in sectors such as phone technology and medicine, quote, the free nations must collectively agree that we will buy these products only from other free nations, close quote, to protect our security. Romney used the words predator, predatory, or predation eight times, along with his repeated invocation of free nations propagating a time-worn worldview of deceitful, barbaric Orientals taking advantage of innocent, rule-abiding Americans, whose businesses naturally never do anything that could be viewed as predatory and whose nation can unequivocally be described as free. The Washington Post's George Will likewise said that it's necessary to stand up to China, encouraging presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden to take up with far-right Republican Senator Tom Cotton's, quote, 
measured but insistent support for an investigation into the possible role of a Wuhan, China research laboratory in the coronavirus outbreak, close quote. Apparently, Biden's campaign ad that claims Trump rolled over for the Chinese and that his travel ban failed to make the U.S. airtight against them was insufficient. Along with the attempt to mainstream a dubious conspiracy theory, Will endorsed Cotton's questioning of, quote, the visas for people from China to pursue postgraduate studies here in advanced science and technology fields. If Chinese students want to study Shakespeare and the Federalist Papers, that's what they need to learn from America. They don't need to learn quantum computing and artificial intelligence from America, close quote. Asian-American groups are reporting a surge in racist abuse, harassment, and assault on a par with that in the wake of September 11th. That is certainly connected to Donald Trump tweeting things like, quote, it was the incompetence of China and nothing else that did this worldwide killing, close quote. It's also related to elite media coverage that conveys essentially the same thing. And we've seen the images of newly visible skylines and waterways clearer than some can remember, consequences of a global reduction in fossil fuel emissions. Not, of course, due to popular political pressure, but a byproduct of the shutdowns and travel restrictions put in place to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Still, as Dorothy Benz wrote for FAIR.org, Earth's resilience has been a symbol of hope and a kind of melancholy joy for many. But if you are looking for corporate media to acknowledge the trade-off of oil demand and planetary health, or maybe even celebrate the drop in demand for oil or use it as a launching point to talk about conversion to renewable sources, well, forget it. Benz found PBS NewsHour lamenting that, quote, no one is consuming energy at the rates they used to, close quote, treating it as a problem to be fixed. Until that corrects itself, the story explained, industry woes would continue. The New York Times featured, I'm just living a nightmare. Oil industry braces for devastation. Profiling and executives worry that, quote, the current disorderly market has adversely damaged the industry, close quote. No word on damage to the environment. And talking about unsustainable prices, with no rejoinder about unsustainable oil consumption. Another Times piece reassured, quote, the good news is the oil will still be in the ground once the economy starts to recover, close quote. Not kept in the ground, you understand, but there to be extracted. The important thing, it would seem, is to get back to normal, even if normal is killing us. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the media watch group FAIR. Just as parents around the country trying to help their kids navigate remote learning are feeling their respect for teachers deepen by orders of magnitude, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo suggests that maybe the pandemic shows that whole teacher-in-a-classroom thing is passé. Specifically, Cuomo said, quote, The old model of everybody goes and sits in a classroom, and the teacher is in front of that classroom and teaches that class, and you do that all across the city, all across the state, all these buildings, all these physical classrooms. Why, with all the technology you have? Close quote. 
that technology can do what teachers do, that a laptop, if the kid has one on the kitchen table, can replace attending school with other students. It's like the funhouse mirror version of the lesson many are taking from the crisis. To whom does such a vision appeal? If participation in Cuomo's scheme to reimagine education is any indication, it's not educators. But will that be enough to stop it? Diane Ravitch is a historian of education at New York University and co-founder and president of the Network for Public Education. She's author of numerous books, most recently Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools, out now from Knopf. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Diane Ravitch. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Well, Cuomo's office backpedaled a bit. An aide tweeted, Teachers are heroes, and nothing could ever replace in-person learning. Meanwhile, they added Eric Schmidt, the head of Google, to the team, whose lead player is Bill Gates. The people now pushing to reimagine education in the midst of the pandemic, these are the same people and reflect the worldview that for some 20 years now has been calling itself education reform. And media, too, call people like Bill Gates reformers. You have a different name. Tell us about that. Well, in my book, Slaying Goliath, I refer to Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all of these tech titans and Wall Street and on and on as disruptors. They have lots of ideas about how to reinvent and reimagine American education. It always involves privatization. It always attacks public control and democratic control of schools. And it very frequently involves technology because what they're interested in is cutting the cost of education. And the most expensive aspect of public education is teachers. And also, from a different point of view, the most important part of education is teachers because I think that we've learned during this pandemic that sitting in front of a screen is not the same as being in a classroom with a human being. So Cuomo has presented New York and also the nation with a real dilemma, which is, are we prepared to make this emergency remote learning into a permanent thing and maybe give it a happier name? They call it personalized learning. But if there's anything that's impersonal, it's sitting in front of a computer for your lessons. Yeah. Well, this reform that, as you note, was always about privatization and folks will know standardized tests, teaching to tests, evaluating teachers in schools based on those tests. It was also or has been marketed as being in particular good for for poor kids and for black and brown kids and saving them from what we're always told were failing schools. But you can see something appealing about standardization. It seems to say, well, you can't keep this black kid out or you can't keep this poor kid out because a 95 on the test is a 95 on the test. But it doesn't work that way. It hasn't worked that way. No, it hasn't worked. It's actually been a a, a tremendous failure. The effort to standardize people always fails because we're all very different. We all have different things we're interested in, different abilities to be cultivated, different passions. And a good teacher knows how to bring out the best in all kids. A machine is simply a machine. And I don't think if you look back over the past decade where these so-called reformers have been promoting standardized testing and using tests for everything, to evaluate teachers uh, having common core standards where everybody in the country 
is allegedly learning the same thing at the same minute. We haven't seen any change whatsoever if we look at test scores. The scores have been flat on the only measures we have that are outside the manipulation of politicians, and that is we have a national test called the NAEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress. The scores on the NAEP, since we've had Common Core and since we've been trying to standardize everybody and everything, have been completely flat. So we've managed to standardize flatness and mediocrity, and it's been a disaster. We've also seen, and I think this may be one of the most troubling aspects of this era, a dramatic decline in the number of people wanting to become teachers. The enrollments in teacher education programs, whether they're graduate programs or professional programs, even undergraduate programs, has simply collapsed. And many institutions have lost a third to 40 percent or even more of their prospective students. And this is because We've been through an era of saying that education can be standardized and turned into a mechanical thing and that teachers are test proctors rather than teachers. Teachers want to see the faces of the children. They want to see that they're having an impact. They want to be able to encourage children face-to-face. They want to speak to those kids who need extra help and give them that extra help. And unfortunately, computers can't do that. I think that if there's one thing we've learned from this pandemic, It's that parents really don't want to be teachers. They want to have professionals doing that, and they'll be very happy to see real schools open again. I think that Cuomo's comment that that buildings are irrelevant is ridiculous, and the day he decides not to have a governor's office and to do his governor's work from a, a computer at home, then he can begin to talk about getting rid of schools. But no parent wants to hear that because, frankly, Parents have jobs. They want to be able to work. They want to be able to go to their workplace. And everybody is not going to be sheltering in place for the rest of their lives. So we're living through what hopefully is a temporary situation. The sooner it ends, the better off we will all be. And when it does end, I hope that we've learned about the value of real teachers who are professionally prepared. Well, the Washington Post's Valerie Strauss noted that Cuomo's remarks drew rebuke from teachers and others who have lived through Gates-funded education reforms. And, and I like that language because it's not just a vision thing and it's not just opinion, as you've just stated, even though, as with so-called common core standards, Gates paid for the creation of the thing, he paid for the implementation, and he paid for its evaluation, and these interventions still failed by their own criteria. Well, you know, this is the great irony of Bill Gates. He's got more money than almost anyone in the world. I think Jeff Bezos has more money than he does now. But he's a guy who's worth well more than $100 billion. He can do whatever he wants to do, and there are no consequences, and there's no accountability for his failures. And he's, from what I gather, I'm not in the public health field. I hear that he's done good things in public health. He has done horrible things in education. Everything he has undertaken in education has been intrusive. It's been a failure. It's discouraged teachers. It's actually hurt the kids that he intends to help. It's done nothing to improve the lot of very poor kids, and it's advanced the narrative of privatization. You have to understand that for 20 years and more, really since 1983 when Reagan was president, there has been this narrative that our public schools are failing and something dramatic needs to happen, throw something at the wall. Well, I frequently ask people, if our public schools are failing, how do we get to be the the most powerful nation in the world? But the war in the public schools continues, only now it's considered 
reinvention. It's called a reform, but there's nothing reform about it. It's simply disruption. Well, it's interesting. Gates acknowledges that his experiments didn't go as he thought. He sort of shrugs and moves on, which he's in a position to do. It's teachers and students, of course, who are the ones in the, the wreckage, you know, and which, as you've noted, involves whipsawing government policy, overturning curricula, money being redirected from other things. These experiments from billionaires have costs that they leave behind. There are many billionaires. They're not as rich as he is, but they've done tremendous damage. I have a chapter in in my most recent book in which I simply list the billionaires and the major corporations that have funded these attacks on public education. And we all know Betsy DeVos is the mistress of destruction. And she is right now using money that was appropriated to save public schools that are in tremendous trouble. And she's urging states to split the money with private schools. Well, no one ever authorized public funding of private schools using the coronavirus relief funds, but that's what she's promoting. But she's one of only literally scores of billionaires, and you can find them in almost every state, who decided, even though they have no knowledge or expertise in education, that education should be privatized because in private hands, somehow it will be better. And we now have a wealth of experience and research and studies that show that privately managed schools and voucher schools in particular are worse than public schools. Well, I learned on your blog, net that Betsy DeVos spoke admiringly of Margaret Thatcher's infamous comments about how people blame society for things, but there's no such thing as society, just individual men and women and families. A secretary of education, someone in charge of public education, who says there's no such thing as society. That's just very Trump administration, I guess. Yes, well, and what's ironic is right now, uh, during a time of national and international crisis, There's, I think, a fairly broad understanding. We're all in this together, and we need leadership. We need society. We each alone with our families cannot develop a vaccine. We cannot fund the research that's necessary to end this pandemic. We need a functioning government that actually believes in science and that is willing to take the lead in telling people how they must act in order to protect themselves. So for our own health, safety, and survival, we need society. So when when Margaret Thatcher and then Betsy DeVos says there's no such thing as society, they're speaking as people who live on on little islands. I don't know Margaret Thatcher's reason, but Betsy DeVos, being a billionaire, can retreat from all of this and protect herself from any interaction with the rest of the world. The, The rest of us can't. We need the world. We need society. Well, you say something dramatic needs to happen. I think folks may remember in 2010, former Education Secretary Arne Duncan called Hurricane Katrina the best thing that happened to the education system in New Orleans. That education system was a disaster, he said, and it took Hurricane Katrina to wake up the community to say we have to do better. Newsweek at the time told its readers... Since Katrina, New Orleans has made more educational progress than any other city, largely because the public school system was wiped out. Using non-union charter schools, New Orleans has been able to measure teacher performance in ways that the teachers' unions have long and bitterly resisted. It's hard not to hear those shock doctrine echoes of Katrina in the coronavirus pandemic. It's just too appealing an opportunity, it seems, to step in when folks are reeling as we are. But you think the disruptors are on their last gasp. 
Well, what I wrote, and I believe, is that the public supports public schools mm-hmm. overwhelmingly, that even where there are multiple charters and it's easy to leave public schools, most kids are still in public schools. In states where there are vouchers that are freely available, very few kids are taking them. And you have legislatures like in Ohio and in Florida and in Arizona pushing vouchers, pushing charters. And what my organization, the Network for Public Education, has discovered through doing research is that charters are very unstable. They are not transparent about either their academics or their finances, and they open and close with great regularity. There are some states now that have more charters closing than there are charters opening. And Congress has given Betsy DeVos a fund of $440 million every year to open new charter schools, and she favors the big corporate chains. So this means that a chain with 200 charters can come into a neighborhood, open a charter school, and drive the public school out of business. And it's not doing it because it's offering better education. It's doing it because it's separating out the kids it wants from the kids it doesn't want. And that's not the role of public education. Charters are not public schools. Vouchers are not public schools. They should not be publicly funded. Public money should go to public schools that have elected school boards or that have oversight and accountability to the public, which neither charters nor vouchers do. The claim for vouchers from DeVos is, well, why can't poor kids choose because, after all, rich kids choose? Well, rich kids are choosing because their parents are paying thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars to go to an elite private school. Mm-hmm. Poor kids are getting a voucher worth five or six thousand dollars and going to a very poor, mostly religious schools where teachers are usually not certified and the quality of education is very poor. So I think what frightens me is that if these people get their way and we have a very conservative Supreme Court that's on the cusp of ruling uh, that states are not allowed to deny funding to religious schools. We will see this country go backwards educationally because having a strong public school system is a pillar of democracy, a public school system that's open to all kids, that doesn't push out kids because they can't speak English, that doesn't exclude the kids because they have disabilities, and that has a full program and doesn't indoctrinate kids into a religious point of view. This is what made America great, and because of the people like DeVos and Trump and the Bill Gateses and other billionaires in the world who are funding all this privatization stuff, we can see our country go backward, and that's what's frightening. Well, finally, it's galling to see the Gates Foundation issuing a response to complaints about this New York initiative, saying... We believe that teachers have an important perspective that needs to be heard, you know, as though that were a gracious concession, Uh you know. Um, But then media and others still hanging on to this notion that riches equal expertise and pretending that we don't know what actually works. You know, if I see another report about, hey, there was a study that said kids do better in smaller sized classes. You know, we know this, you know, it's just about who they listen to. What would you like to see more of or less of in in terms of education reporting? Well, the scary thing about the pandemic is that every school system in the country is going to be faced with dramatic budget cuts. And what I would like to see reporters focused on is the funding. And the funding should be not following the child. I mean, this is what Betsy DeVos wants and what all the right-wingers want. 
is to see the funding diverted to wherever the child goes. If they go to a religious school, the money goes there. If they homeschool, the money goes there. This is public money. This is our taxpayer dollars, and just go to public institutions. I would like to see reporters understand that children learn best when they have human teachers and when they have interaction with their peers, and I would like to see them follow the money. Who is funding the charter movement? I know who's funding it. Read my book. It's mainly the Walton Foundation, which hates unions and which is responsible for one out of every four charter schools in the country. I would like to see them follow the money to the extent of saying what really matters is that kids have small enough classes, and the research on small class size is overwhelming. And I would like to see them expose this hoax that somehow promoting privatization benefits the neediest children when, in fact, privatization hurts the neediest children. And they need to look at the research, the research on increased segregation and the defunding of the schools where the poorest kids attend. This has now grown overwhelming. And when Betsy DeVos publicly urges the states to split the money between low-income public schools and high-income private schools, this is sick, and it should be reported as a disgrace. And, you know, so many disgraceful things are happening in education, and the reporters need to be all over it. We've been speaking with Diane Ravitch. She blogs at dianeravitch.net. The latest book is Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. It's out now from Knopf. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin, Diane Ravitch. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.